0: In 1998, Cardinal Ratziger's holy office confirmed this doctrine as a dogma of the faith necessary for salvation. But then in 2010, Pope Benedict refused to answer the dubia, which vindicates the trads. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Welcome to the Meaning of Catholic. My name is Timothy Flanders, and this is Pope Benedict Vindicates the Trads. This is a series for trads, by trads, about trads, centered on Pope Benedict, discussing his life, his work, his errors and omissions, and all of the ways that he vindicates the traditional movement as it is understood in the modern period. Today's topic. Modernism in the Vatican II documents? Question mark. Yes and no. Today we'll talk about the often referred to topic of the Vatican II documents, teaching modernism or teaching heresy. We'll talk about some distinctions that it will, might be helpful, and we'll get into all those topics on a specific point of doctrine, which is extremely fundamental and important. That is the doctrine of revelation contained in De Verbum, paragraph eleven. Now. After this show, we're going to do our guild stream. The guild family stream starts at 3:30, so about 30 minutes from now. And in that show, we'll discuss the subsisted in controversy. So the 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 uh, the doctrine plenum that says the Catholic Church subsists in the or so the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. That doctrine, that phrase uh is often used to prove seemingly that Vatican II documents do teach heresy, teach modernism, and I will show why that's not a good argument from a traditional perspective, and I think how we should be arguing that passage better uh, using research from the secondary sources, from the primary uh, schemata and the and the draft documents and how Vatican II happened. So we'll talk about that in about 30 minutes. That's on the Guild Family Stream. If you want to be a part of the Guild Stream, you get the Guild content, you get uh, free books, you get guild community go to patreon.com slash meaning of catholic you also get this book for free which we'll be referencing uh a lot on this show is uh, introduction of the holy bible for traditional catholics you get this book for free if you join the guild uh even at the lowest level at five dollars a month you get this free book so if you want to go into all the sources that i'm about to quote all of the sources and even more documentation is contained in this book uh, so you can get that for free by being a guild member you can also buy it on Amazon. Um, I think it's $15. I can't remember what it is now, but it's $15 to buy on Amazon, or you can buy an ebook for $10. Anyways, we'll get into that in a minute. Now, when we understand, we look at Vatican II, it's very important that we keep this distinction. When we look at ecumenical councils, um, the distinction between historical realities and the ontological reality. Um, and this is something that if you go to one of our, one of our members, Jake Fowler, he has another series on the ecumenical councils, which is a really great series to go check out. He he's going through, I think he's on part 14 now going through each of the ecumenical councils and all the different histories of the ecumenical councils. That's what we need to, we need to look through the eyes of history and uh, the eyes of tradition as trads to look at the second Vatican council and really look at it fairly and objectively and don't, settle for some kind of straw man argument against vatican ii or anything like that for example there was a crisis after vatican ii therefore vatican ii is the problem well that's that's pretty that's a pretty weak argument because after or after before or during many ecumenical councils there was a massive crisis there was bloodshed there was heresy there was heresy at the council there was heretics at the council there was bishops who were heretics at the council trying to machinations of the council, etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera. I mean, this is a, this is a reality. This, so this is historical reality of an ecumenical council. And there's also an ontological reality of an ecumenical council. A, an, ec, the ontological reality, we mean to refer to its magisterial teaching. It's the reality of its teaching for the faithful. And what it is what it, what is it actually teaching? So, we can actually ask the question, does Vatican II teach modernism in two ways? We can say, does Vatican II teach modernism on a historical level? Does And then on the other hand, does Vatican II teach modernism on a magisterial level? And these are two separate realities, but that are nevertheless linked because a magisterial reality doesn't exist except in history, of course. So let me give an example. So you have, we have the Arian crisis happening in the year 325 when 318 bishops come to Nicaea to have the Council of Nicaea and end up eventually giving us the Nicene Creed that we recite at every Mass. Uh, so in that creed, it says uh, that concialum uh, patri, the the son is consubstantial with the father. And that's the critical phrase which refutes Arian, uh, Arianism, which stated that, Jesus is only man. He is, a, he is the highest creation, but he's only man. He's not consubstantial with the father. Okay. So that's the magisterial reality. Now, what if, what if instead of that doctrine, the council of Nicaea came out and said, here's our doctrine in response to Arianism. Jesus Christ is a man, period. That's the end of the council. Well, could it be said that the Nicaea in that case was preaching heresy? No, on a ministerial level, because Jesus Christ is man is a true statement. It's not a heresy to say that Jesus Christ is man. However, in the context of Arianism, now we're in the the historical context. We're in the historical context of Arianism, and if the council were to come out and say Jesus Christ is man, in context, it would be preaching heresy. It would be preaching the Arian heresy, basically, even though technically it's not saying the arian heresy because in order to have the arian heresy you have to say jesus christ is only man you need to have the word only so this is the reality of what we're dealing with and there's been different councils where we've had situations where there hasn't been enough clarity on a certain um, situation notably for example one of the most fundamental and long-lasting problems for example is the council of trent failing to define the proper relationship between the temporal and spiritual powers. Um, and this, we could potentially say, led to absolutism, the absolute monarchies of France, um, to a lesser degree, um, the, the absolute monarchy of England, even though it was already heretical. But that then led to the French Revolution and liberalism, and all of our modern period. So we could even say Trent failed in that sense. But It's not uh, it's not uh, it wasn't the serious heresy that was coming to the fore. So we can forgive Trent for that, even though that was left out and may have been better if they would have defined it. But all of these things are governed by God's providence. So we need we don't need to worry the fact that this or that council, you know, may have not done it the way we would have liked it because God is ultimately the governor of history. So let's get into um, Vatican II. Now, by the way, this distinction between historical and ontological is I first saw this in Dietrich von Hildebrand's book, The Charitable Anathema. This is a a bunch of critical essays from the 60s and 70s uh, from one of the godfathers of the Trad Movement. So I highly recommend reading this book. It's just a a powerhouse from the doctor of the church in the 20th century, the hammer of the Nazis and communists, um, Dietrich von Hildebrand. So recommend that, The Charitable Anathema. Okay, so what is the historical reality, the historical context of what, what the church is dealing with coming into the 1960s. Well, in my book, I boiled it down to the, the most fundamental error, the fundamental heresy of modernism coming from the original modernists, notably Alfred Loisy and George Tyrrell, Jesuit in name only. Um, These, the modernists were was, it was the evolution of, do, of dogma. This is what Pius X says in, in Pashendi. evolution of dogma, evolution is their, is their main heresy. And the way this affects the foundations of faith is that it, it states that revelation itself is not a deposit of faith, a deposit of truth, but rather it evolves from what was, it was originally that it evolves into something better. And then it, works right along with the liberal liberal revolutions since 1773 um so along with this a critical piece of of being able to promote modernism is the error of limited inerrancy limited inerrancy what this is 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 stating that the holy scriptures are only inerrant meaning without error on certain things they're only inerrant on certain things that is on faith or morals or things according to salvation, but they're not inerrant on historical matters. So, when uh, you know the book of Third Kings says such and such about King so and so at this place, they could have made an error because who cares? It doesn't matter if if they made an error based on this you know historical fact that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter our salvation. Therefore, it made an error. Now, this was condemned. So this was the doctrine of Alfred Wazi. This was condemned by Leo the Thirteenth in Providentissimus Deus. And here's the first condemnation. So what what I'm going to prove real quick here before we go into Vatican II is that this doctrine of limited inerrancy was was um it was condemned by multiple popes consistently in many encyclicals. I'm not going to quote every single encyclical, they're in the book, but uh, I, I will quote this. So starting with um Providentissimus Deus. This is 1893. Here's what Leo XIII says. Quote, Those who maintain that an error is possible in any genuine passage of the sacred writings either pervert the Catholic notion of inspiration or make God the author of such an error. End quote. Now, if you have the latest edition of Denzinger, this is on um, 3293, number 3293 in Denzinger, where he elaborates how if you, if you believe that, if you assert that any passions of scripture contains any error uh, you, you then deny God because God is the author of scripture. So if God is the author of scripture, how can God, God is truth itself. So how could God possibly uh, possibly the, be the author of any error whatsoever, even a historical error that seems to be irrelevant. So what happens is this condemnation, Lwazi is, is um, he's excommunicated uh, Tyrol uh is it, it does he die excommunicated i don't even remember but i know Loazi is is excommunicated he dies excommunicated uh pious the 10th continues with lamentabili, condemning the same issues uh then we have benedict the 15th he condemns the same thing in uh spiritus proclitus um then we have moving on Pius the 11th does not actually uh do anything on this but he condemns the modernism coming out and etc um, etc But now when we get to Pius the 12th, now he releases another encyclical on the Holy Scripture called Divino Afflante Spiritu. Now this encyclical is actually problematic in a, in a particular way, but that's you have to read the book to get that part. It's that's not relevant to what we're talking about. But what, what Pius XII he releases the encyclical in 1943. But then in 1950, he releases another encyclical, Humani uh, Generis. And in that encyclical, he makes mention of this error of limited inerrancy. Now, notice what he says here. Now, I, I should say also, this is also the doctrine of Florence and of Trent and of Vatican I. But Leo Thirteenth clarifies it more thoroughly in, in that Providentesimus Deus. He clarifies it by saying that God cannot be the author of a historical error. So he's condemning limited inerrancy as a specific aspect of inerrancy. So here's Pius XII in Humani Generis, paragraph 22, quote, for some, some, some go so far as to pervert the sense of the Vatican Council's definition, we're talking about Vatican I here, that God is the author of Holy Scripture. And they put forward again the opinion Already often condemned, which asserts that that immunity from error extends only to those parts of the Bible that treat of God or of moral and religious matters. End quote. So notice what he says here. He says it's already been often condemned. This idea of limited inerrancy it's already been often condemned. We have this. We have a similar situation as like we have an aryan crisis happening regarding this limited inerrancy. We've already condemned it. Multiple popes have already condemned it. Pius twelve says. Yawn, we've already done that. We've already condemned that many times. How could they possibly put forward? Well, therefore, the original schema of Vatican II de Fontibus Revolutionis, says this: quote, "So this is the original draft of the document from Vatican II on this subject. quote: "Because divine inspiration extends to everything, the absolute immunity of all Holy Scripture from error follows directly and necessarily." That's what Leo XIII had, had argued. For we are taught by the ancient and constant faith of the church that it is utterly forbidden to grant that the sacred author himself has erred since divine inspiration of itself necessarily excludes and repels any error in any matter, religious or profane, as it is necessary to say that God, the supreme Truth, is never the author of any error whatsoever. So that's the original Vatican II document on this, this point. Now, we know, at least from... I know from one, one source, there was the, let's see, where is it? Um, I was kind of trying to find Koenig. I didn't have this prepared. There was one Cardinal, uh, I believe it was Koenig of Vienna actually preached. He said in the aula at Vatican two, he said, he said, actually there are errors in the Bible because modern archeology span has proved that they're wrong. That's what he said in the Aula of Vatican II. Well, that's the heresy of limited inerrancy that's already often condemned, as Pius XII just said. But these liberals and heretics were able to push against this schema. Now, we've already discussed how Joseph Ratzinger was a critical part of throwing out that the fundamental rupture of Vatican II, where they threw out the documents. Now, here we're talking about the historical realities, getting back to that distinction in the beginning. The historical reality is there was a massive rupture on the bare historical level, when you take a document and you throw it into the trash and you write a new one, that's a historical rupture. Now, we can start to debate whether or not there's a magisterial rupture. That's a separate debate, but we need to make this distinction here. Now, I'll get into this more in just a minute. Now, what they did is, the the, the heretics of Vatican II, they pushed and pushed and pushed against the... A uh, very strongly worded uh document originally they threw out the original document and so therefore uh day verbum 11 says this since everything asserted by the inspired authors or sacred writers must be held to be asserted by the holy spirit it follows that the books of the scripture must be acknowledged as teaching solidly faithfully and without error that truth which god wanted put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation end quote notice notice the distinctions here, the prior definitions had a lot of words like any, all, whatsoever, it completely excluding limited inerrancy from, from being taught at all. But David Verbum 11 specifically says that the Holy Spirit is the author. Therefore, God put that truth without error, that truth that's for the sake of our salvation, end quote. Now, this is in- incredibly similar to what P- or Benedict Fifteenth says specifically in spiritus palaclitus and you'll have to I, I don't have time to go into the exact wording but it's very very close it's almost exactly the same thing so david Verbum is saying almost the exact same thing opposite of what benedict the 15th is saying so um so what do we have from here now we have a situation where the heretics go wild and they say wow We've finally allowed there to be error in the scriptures. Isn't this great? They go wild because there's enough ambiguity there to run with it. So they run with it. Um, You know, Monsignor Ed, Edward Johnson, SJ comes to town and says, oh, well, guess what, faithful? In fact, there are errors in the Holy Scripture. The Vatican Council, too, just said it. Uh, And the faithful are not. They don't have enough theological training or whatever to sh- shoot holes in this Jesuitical in name only, uh, reasoning from so and so SJ. Um, and so this error gets pushed and it's even pushed by Raymond Brown, who is the I don't know if he's an SJ, but he is, he's he's a, a higher up in the Pontifical Biblical Commission. He is uh, he publishes it, helps to publish the Saint Jerome Biblical Commentary. Um, but he preaches this error of limited inerrancy and he references dairy variable. Now it gets to so bad. Now people, you know, our, our critics will say, oh, well, that's a problem with implementation. Well, that's a, that's a valid argument, but what about this? Uh, oh, I forgot to mention, um, now in 1998 Cardinal Ratzinger even confirms that, the doctrine of the, in, the inspiration of Holy Scripture, the absence of error in the inspired text, end quote, is a De Fide proposition. This is from the commentary on the, doctor, on the um, formula for Professor De Fide, 1998. Again, all these references are in my book. So Ratzker himself confirms this is, de fide, this is De Fide. This is not a laughing matter. This is a matter of salvation, that we believe in the inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures. Now, as I said, some people will say this is simply implementation not the text. Well, let me comment on that in a minute, but look at this. 2010, Pope Benedict is Pope now. We have a synod, sound familiar? We have an instrumentum laboris, sound familiar? And in that instrumentum laboris, it it literally added the word only in the instrumentum laboris to the phrase from Dave Verbum 11. And by adding the word only, it explicitly teaches limited inerrancy. So we have the Synod of Bishops pushing for limited inerrancy explicitly. And then the Synod of Bishops sends a dubium to Pope Francis and they say this. The Synod, well, I can't quote all this stuff because we don't have time, but they ask Pope Benedict to clarify inspiration and truth. Well, a good plan would be to go back to the schema that we just quoted in these previous encyclicals. You wouldn't even need to have a dubium. But what does Pope Benedict do? Verbum Domini 2010. He says this. In response to this dubium, he could have just said, hey, we've already clarified that the whole the scripture is entirely immune, immune from error. He says this. Quote. This is Verbum, Verbum Domini 19. A deeper study of the process of inspiration will doubtless lead to a greater understanding of the truth contained in the sacred books. The inspired books teach truth one must acknowledge the need today for a fuller and more adequate study of these realities in order to better to respond to the need to interpret the sacred texts in accordance with their nature and then he expresses firm hope that biblical research will resolve this problem end quote now um i think that that this illustrates the problem with vatican II because we have a situ a historical context that has arisen because of a heretic named elvin Wazi which is preaching a heresy that Cardinal Ratzinger confirms is a heresy. We're dealing with a de fide issue. Then we have, so we have a settled issue. It's pretty much settled. We've settled the the issue up to Vatican II. Then Vatican II takes the settled issue that Pius XII says is already often condemned, and then it reopens the door. It says, well, maybe we didn't condemn that properly. That's what it looks like. Um, and then, even as Pope Pope Benedict doesn't even answer the dubium presented to him, and he's a scripture scholar, he's a biblical theologian above all. Now, so here's the historical reality. Now, we we need to clarify here because magisterially speaking, De Verbum 11 does not teach limited inerrancy. So if you look at the bare text of De Verbum and the commentary from the Holy Office in 1998, it does reference this very thing from Leo XIII from 3293, Dedziger. And the language is a little more ambiguous, but if we follow the norms of theological interpretation, as any theologian should be doing as a theologian, you can't come up with heresy out of out of De Verbum 11. You can't do it. It's, it doesn't actually teach it per se. But here, the historical reality, the historical context of this whole controversy, ends up preaching heresy nonetheless. But this is the way that the devil works. The devil cannot overcome the church. He can't overcome the church's magisterium. He cannot do it. The church is infallible by her very essence, and the church, the magisterium, is infallible in certain cases, in certain conditions. But there's a general protection with the census fidelium, etc. So the devil actually get this to happen in the most explicit way possible because if he could, then the gates of hell have overcome the church. And so what he does is he he finds some way to make a, a smoke and mirror operation to promote heresy nonetheless. And so we have this situation with Vatican II. Um, we have a historical event which de facto ends up teaching heresy on a bare historical level, but on a magisterial level, it's far more debatable whether or not it does it really preach heresy. Does it really teach heresy? Uh, I've never seen a positive error in Vatican II that cannot be interpreted in an Orthodox way. I've never seen it. Um, If you, I, I mean, I've seen most of them. So, But if you you show me one that's a positive error, it cannot be interpreted any other way, but heretically, I would eat my words. Now, I'm hoping to get some feedback from some hardcore pro-Vatican II Orthodox theologians who can really refute what I just said in this whole broadcast, which is in my book. Uh, And hopefully we can try to clarify this if there's some better way to understand it. Um, And maybe in a second edition of my book, I'll, I'll... sharpen this but this is kind of the this is the reality this is the problem with vatican ii is that we have a situation where vatican ii teaches modernism sort of on a historical level but does not teach modernism on a ontological level well that's a problem we have a problematic council event now once again there have been other problematic council events in history notably i think of the council of ephesus it was a brutal council with lots of violence and bloodshed St. Cyril used his army of monks to terrorize the city of Ephesus until the doctrine of the Theotokos was proclaimed. Um, and Our Lady triumphed at Ephesus. But the event itself was very problematic for the church and really schismatic. It, it was bad. It was terrible. It was really a terrible council in in sort of the bare histor- history of the council. So those are some of the issues. Now, in the guild stream, we're going to talk about um, subsisted in. So we'll talk about that. And why subsisted in, actually, it's it's a similar situation to the day Arabum 11, but it's not the same, because we'll talk about who actually invented the word in subsisted in. You'll be surprised when you find out who it was and a little bit of the history here. Now, I'm sorry I didn't have more time to talk, about, um, talk on uh, your chat questions, so feel free to get those to just comment below. Hopefully, we can get to those, God willing, soon um so thanks so much for watching this is benedict pope benedict vindicates the trads in a couple of weeks we will have we will have e michael jones discussing Joseph Rasker. uh that'll be on the guild stream as well so you want to access that uh be a part of the guild for now let's offer up a hail mary and uh always offer this and dedicate this to the greater glory of our lady because she is the mother of the church and uh this is actually a, a feast that was or a title that was was given to Our Lady at Vatican two is mother of the church. And then Pope Francis actually added that as a feast day, which we'll actually be celebrating very soon on uh, Pentecost Monday. So uh, she is the mother of the church and we can have full confidence that even in the, the messiness of history, God's providence ultimately prevails. And, and we will, at the conclusion of this series, we will actually, I'll share some, my hypothesis as to where I think Vatican II is in God's providence and where, where we're headed. So stay tuned for that. Let's pray. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. Saint Joseph, terror of demons, pray for us. Saint Anthony of the Desert, pray for us. In nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Yeah.